0: Welcome, so good to have each of you here as we're kind of beginning, uh, getting into this series uh, we're going to be in for the next three months, Experiencing God. And what I'm really excited about with this is that it isn't just that I'm going to be talking about this on Sundays in our sermons, but that we're all going to be working through this together during the week. We have the workbook, we're reading the scriptures, we are praying through them, and we are uh, intentionally seeking God's face together as a church. Uh, So I'm really excited about what God is going to be doing among us and what the result of all of this is going to be for the life of our church. The whole point of this, uh, what we're trying to accomplish, is that we will, through the process of actually listening to God's word and seeking him in prayer together, that we will know what God's will is and we will do it. Uh, So that's kind of the long and short of it. One of the reasons marriage is so hard is that we have a hard time figuring out what the other person really wants. A common complaint is that we don't know what our spouse wants. We think we understood what they said they wanted and we try to do it and oftentimes it seems like it's the exact opposite of what they wanted. Uh, and I won't, uh, this works both ways. Sometimes men don't say what's going on. They just, they're kind of clammed up. And sometimes women uh, really want you to decipher it. And, and we, we struggle to understand each other and what it is we want. I think we can say the same thing about our relationship with God. We're embarking on this 12 week study to focus on knowing and doing the will of God. So where do we start? What do we need to know to begin to figure out just what it is that God wants of our lives? Today we're going to look at our first week's memory verse John 15 5 and we're going to consider what it has to tell us about God's will and our lives. And if this looks familiar great that means you're doing the and what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, this is uh, one verse, but I'm going to break it into three uh, bits. So uh, bear with me. Let's start out with the first part of the verse. I am the vine you are the branches and perhaps it's unfair to pick just one verse and and not know what the conversation going on is about so let me catch you up what Jesus has said in the verses immediately before this is he has said I am the true vine and uh, it's interesting for Jesus to say that because uh, The prophets in the Old Testament had often talked about God's vine. And in the prophets, the vine uh, God talked about was always Israel. So let me review briefly with you what the Old Testament has to say about God's vine. The vine before we get to Jesus in Isaiah uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. God tells this story to Isaiah Isaiah, about how he took Israel as a precious vine and planted it on a fertile hill. And he cleared all the stones and he even built a watchtower to keep it safe. And when he was looking for the fruit to come from that vine, the vine produced wild grapes. And God explains to Isaiah what he means by this metaphor. God was seeking justice, but instead he found bloodshed. God was looking for righteousness, but instead all he found was an outcry. Not long, well... Maybe a hundred years later, Jeremiah writes in chapter 2, verse 21, and he talks about Israel, that Israel was God's vine planted of pure seed, but she became wild and degenerate roughly at the same time Ezekiel from exile is writing and in chapter 19 verses 10 through 14 he writes a lament for Israel and he compares Israel to a vine that has gone from fruitful plenty to being plucked up and thrown out on dry ground to wither and die and before any of these three prophets I've just mentioned We can talk about Hosea who prophesied in the northern kingdoms before they fell to Assyria. In Hosea chapter 10 verse 1, he compares, he says Israel is a luxuriant vine. But the more fruitful she became, the more she devoted herself to idolatry. She built up altars and pillars to false gods. And the better things went for her, the more she threw herself into that task. So through the whole Old Testament, we have this picture of God choosing a people and giving the people his law, his instruction, and working powerfully, mightily, uh, showing his mighty hand among them and doing incredible, amazing things among them. And the result of all of that work on God's part is that Israel fails to produce the fruit he wants to see of humankind. So eventually God comes himself to make it possible for us to produce the fruit he wanted to see. And that is why Jesus can show up and say, I am the true vine. I am the true way in which the Father is going to see from the human race the fruit he intended when he first designed their existence to begin with. And uh, Jesus uh, tells us uh, what the Father is up to. If Jesus is the true vine, uh, He says something that can be, depending on what what type of branch you are, it can be frightening or encouraging. He says, "If I'm the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who tends the vine. And guess what the Father does with branches that produce no fruit?" He cuts them off and throws them in the fire. But branches that are producing fruit, He cleans, He prunes, so that they may produce even more fruit. <coughs> so it becomes very clear from all, of the, all that Jesus says leading up to this that God always intended for us to have significance For our lives to produce something that God himself, God Almighty himself, would deem pleasing. There has to be a reason we exist. And to the point is this important to God. That if we are not producing the fruit he intended, then all that is left for us is to be thrown into the fire. Because uh, his intent for us is that our lives produce the good fruit he intended when he designed our very existence. And if if we're not going to produce it, then uh, destruction is all, the fire is all that he's going to do with us. But if we are able to produce the fruit he wants, he's going to work in us in such a way that that fruitfulness is on an ever-increasing trajectory. That he is pruning us and working in us so that that fruit becomes richer and better and fuller the longer we live. All this is prelude to what he says here now. So if this is the Father's grand plan, he wants to bring fruit and he's brought the vine to make that possible. What do we need to know to avail ourselves of that? For that fruitfulness that Israel was never able to produce to become a reality in our lives. What do we have to do? Well, I think there's some things we have to understand for this to happen. And this is the beginning of it. I am the vine. You are the branches. Before fruitfulness is going to happen in our lives, we have to understand our position. Now, the problem of humankind, and it's been this way since Eve first took the fruit. God had set Adam and Eve in the the garden and had had, uh, entrusted them with the administration of creation itself. What a task. What a purposeful existence God had designed for them. That in in harmony with God himself, they would govern creation. But that wasn't what Eve wanted. You see, the serpent told her, you know, if you eat the fruit God told you not to eat, you will become like him. You will become God. God. And Eve thought, why administer all of creation with God if I can do it all by by myself? If I can do it on my own? And she ate. And of course, it was a lie. It didn't make her more like God. It made her less like God. And uh, we have all uh, battled with this delusion ever since that somehow I can be the vine somehow I can be the source of everything that I need. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I can make something of myself and if I work hard enough and I put enough gumption into it I will produce something worthy of God's approval. All I have to do is try hard. And we throw ourselves into study and uh, uh, degrees. And we throw ourselves into careers and accomplishments. And we think all the accolades we might get through all of this hard work. That proves that we are producing worthy fruit. But if it isn't the fruit God's looking for, it's pointless. We cannot be the vine. We cannot be the source from which fruit comes. We have to accept the fact that anything good that comes out of our lives is always going to be derivative. It's not coming from me. I am just a branch. All I have to offer is my vesselhood, my capacity to bear the fruit that the vine wishes to produce. I cannot nourish myself. I cannot sustain my own existence. And I certainly cannot produce fruit all by myself. You take a branch off of the vine and set it out there. Just lay it on the ground. How many grapes are you going to get from that thing? None at all. So let's begin with understanding the truth. We are branches We are not, we never are, never will be vine. We will always be utterly dependent on Jesus, the true vine. Let's keep reading. The one who abides in me and I in him, this one bears much fruit. We want to bear the fruit the Father is looking for. What needs to happen Okay, we we accept the fact that I cannot produce this fruit. I'm the branch. I'm not the vine. It's going to come from Jesus. But how does this work? How does it get from the vine to this branch so that it can produce fruit? How does it get from glorious Jesus to miserable old me? Jesus tells us we abide in him. Now that makes sense. If I'm the branch and he's the vine, then I absolutely have to abide in him. Because the minute I break away from him, there is no life. I am utterly cut off from the source of life. I cannot sustain myself by myself. So I must abide in him. I can't even separate for a moment. I need to stay there. I need to take up residence. I need to pitch my tent, build my house, lay my foundation in him. There's no other way. That makes absolute sense if I am branch and he is vine. Here's the wonder though. That not only do I have to abide in him, but that he commits himself to abide in him. In me. Now he doesn't need me at all. He doesn't need to abide in me the way I need to abide in him. He has no dependence on me. I have all dependence on him and yet graciously in the kindest possible most generous condescension available God himself deigns to abide in me. Paul talks about this as a great mystery. It is astounding. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that we should be invited to a reciprocal relationship in which not only do I abide in Jesus, not only do I stay focused in Him, but He promises to remain just as committed on His end to me. He will abide in me. He will take up residence in me. I need never be alone in this life and in this abiding. It's a mutual abiding. Jesus wants to abide in me. And in this mutual abiding, in this mutual staying put, remaining, pitching our tents in this space, that's where a whole lot of fruit begins to happen. How do we bear fruit? Notice Jesus doesn't talk about strategies he doesn't talk about demographics he doesn't talk about action plans he doesn't talk about metrics and skill sets he talks about you and me he says fruit comes from you and me and me and you that's where it comes from In our lives and this is something we constantly need to remind ourselves of and we need to make conscious efforts take real tangible steps to ensure that this priority is a reality not just a theory in our lives there is only one absolutely necessary relationship in my life and that is my relationship with Jesus From that one relationship flows anything of worth that will ever come from my life. You want a good marriage? You better invest in Jesus because otherwise you have nothing to offer your spouse. You want to be a good parent? You better invest your heart and soul in Jesus because otherwise you have nothing to give your children. You want to be a good human being? Invest your whole life in Jesus because that is the only way you will ever contribute anything of any worth to anyone. It is only in this one relationship that fruit happens. Abide in me. I in you. That's where much fruit happens. And finally, because apart from me, you cannot do anything. I have known this verse. At the very least, been very much aware of it since I was a teenager. I have spent my life trying to remind myself of this truth. One of the worst truncated backwards, nonsensical approaches to the Christian faith goes something like this. I know God's really busy because everybody's talking to him all the time. So I'm not going to bother him with the small stuff. I'm going to only bring to him things that are really big, like cancer or something like that. But otherwise, I'll just work and do my best to do what's right and to please him, and I'll be over here doing that, and I'll only bother God when there's some really important thing going on. Now, the person who thinks that's what the Christian life is about hasn't understood that apart from Jesus, you cannot do anything. And it may sound pious to say, I don't want to bother God. All you're doing really is offering an excuse to not have an intimate relationship with him that he is challenging you to embrace. He wants to abide in you. He wants you to abide in him. And we can use all kinds of excuses to keep God at arm's length and even try to sound pious doing it, but that is false. Apart from Jesus, we cannot do anything. It's not that I, I uh, take my marching orders and I run off and I do all this stuff and I will check with Jesus when I have a problem. The minute I step away from Jesus to do anything, I am already wasting my time. The minute I take one step without him, I have stepped into uselessness because apart from Jesus we cannot do anything anything at all and here's the, the, the struggle I think of the Christian walk learning to not do anything but what Jesus is doing in us We have a tendency to get ourselves caught up in all kinds of things. that have nothing to do with him. And we want to uh, put Jesus in this little corner of our lives. Sunday morning and maybe a few other moments. But the rest of the week we're too busy living life. And we haven't understood that there is no life to live but Jesus. Anything else I'm doing is a waste of my time and everybody around me. Because I have nothing to contribute of worth without Him. In fact, Jesus is all I have to give. We have to understand that truth. We have to let it penetrate our hearts and enter into a way of living in which the utter dependence on Jesus marks every second of every day. How do we discover God's will? We find it in Jesus. We turn our hearts to him in faith, in trust, and he comes in. He's the vine. From him, every good thing flows, and he will bind us to himself so that we may abide in him as he abides in us. The Old Testament is filled with prophets who spoke of God's frustration. He looked to the human race seeking good fruit and found absolutely none. We cannot produce anything of worth. So the Father sent Jesus the Son to make it possible for us to produce the good fruit he always intended for us to produce. How do we recover God's purpose for our existence? How do we know what he wanted when he first gave us the breath of life? We come to Jesus. We bind ourselves to him. He binds himself to us and produces in us the good things God wants. Jesus implements in us The will of God. I don't know where you stand with Jesus today. If you don't know him, let me encourage you today to fix that. All it takes is coming before him and saying, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you aren't. I know you are perfect and righteous. And you came to make possible not only the forgiveness of my sins, but the utter radical transformation of my life from death to eternal life. And I want to surrender my heart to you as my Lord, as my Savior. And I want you to take my life and do something glorious with it. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to make that commitment with Jesus today. Maybe you already know Jesus and today's been a reminder. Boy, you have been wasting your life. You have been wandering, doing things all alone. You have strayed from me. You have not remained close to me. And because of that, your life is fruitless. And pointless and marked by nothing but frustration. And if that's you this morning, now's the moment to say, Jesus, forgive me, abide in me, and teach me to abide in you. Whatever God lays on your heart this morning, this is your opportunity to respond to what God has said to you in his word today. Let's all stand there are people that are going to be here at the front to help Uh, whatever God's laid on your heart come forward take their hand share with them what God's put on your heart and let them pray with you and for you we're here to encourage one another and strengthen one another Uh, please come while we sing